Hey, we are continuing our teaching series called Rooted. And, and what we're really talking about is growing deeper into our relationship with God and, and exploring how, how do I, I began this relationship with Jesus, now how do I move it forward? How do I enrich it? How do I invest in it and, and take it to that place where God wants me to experience who he is, his love for me, and, and how he wants to live out my my life. So we actually did that last weekend with our middle school kids. We uh, took them away to uh, Ironwood Springs at Winter Summit Retreat, and, and they had an amazing time there, and they had great times tubing. Believe it or not, there was still enough snow slash slush that um, they could tube. We played games. They had great worship times and teaching. Now, when all that's happening, you may wonder, well, what do the adult chaperones do while all that's going on? So, so let me just show you what we do. We face paint and have a grand old time with that. So here's what I know. Either one or two things is going to happen. You're now never going to let your middle schooler come with us, or you're never going to join us on our middle school team. But we had an amazing time. And, and if you notice, Jen Olson's face looks way better than the rest of ours. Um, and somebody called me a smurf, which really hurt. Um, so not cool. But we had a great time. And what happened during that weekend was kids figured out what it looked like to follow Jesus. And they grew and they became more rooted in their faith. They had relationships that grew. At the beginning of the week, we had kids that didn't know each other. As a matter of fact, it was really funny. On, on Saturday morning, one of our kids, who's, who's super quiet all by himself, he's sitting at breakfast with one of our staff and another kid, and he looks over at him and he goes, Dude, you don't talk much. And that was it. And there was silence after that and a really awkwardness between them. By Sunday, those two guys were like together and just you couldn't shut them up. It was amazing. But, but they grew in their relationship with each other. And they grew in their relation with God. That's our hope for this series, that we would grow deeper in our faith with God. So we're going to quickly review the last couple of weeks in case you haven't been here, or if you're like me, you might have forgotten. After about three weeks, I forget what, you know, what's going on. So we're really talking about being firmly planted, that, you know, what we see in our lives on the outward appearance really doesn't expose what's going on on the inside. What's really going on in our hearts, that's, that's what's really important. Because if we're not firmly rooted, when the struggles of life happen, when, when we get thrown a curveball, when, when something happens we weren't planning on, we can get uprooted in our faith. And it can damage us. I was talking with my wife this week about this a little bit. And, and for those of you that have been, been friends with us for a while, you know that her sister passed away about nine years ago. She had just given birth to twins six months before that. And then she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and she died. And let me tell you, that threw us a curveball. It made you ask all kinds of questions about God. And, and it really challenged how rooted we were. And I've got to be honest, there was some wrestling. There was some unanswered questions that just went, what's that all about? But our hope is 
that we have grown deep enough in our roots that we can get through those difficult times and keep moving forward. The key passage for this series comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. And uh, it's important to recognize that Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter to the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus was one of the churches that he planted during his missionary travels. And it was going through difficult, tough stuff. The church was being persecuted. People were being thrown in jail. People were being beaten. And they were going, whoa, we didn't sign on for this. What's the deal? We thought God loved us. And Paul, who's in prison, is able to write to them and say, hang in there. It's going to be okay. So he writes these words. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. So why should we believe that God loves us? This is the key question from week one. Why should we believe that God loves us? And as we wrestle with that, we came to the conclusion, I hope, or at least you know, made you start thinking about, that God does love us. And the question that came alongside of that was, well, how much does God love us? I mean, if he loves us, how, how much does he love us? And, and he loves us so much that he sent Jesus Christ for us. That Jesus' entire purpose, his life, his death, his resurrection, was out of love. And that God adopted us into his family. In Ephesians 1.5, Paul continues writing to, to this church that's struggling. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it great, gave him great pleasure. So when he first starts writing to the Ephesian church, and they were going, we're not sure God loves us. He goes, yeah, he does. He loves you so richly, so deeply. He's adopted you into his family, and he knew it from the very beginning, and it brings him great pleasure. And then he continued to write that I want you to know God's rich, deep love, how wide it is, how deep it is, how strong it is, how tall it is towards us. In other words, we are God's kids. We're chosen and we're loved. In week two, we wrestle with this question. How do I grow deeper roots into God's love? I'm going to buy into that God loves me. I'm going to buy into that God has adopted me. So how, how do I grow in this relationship with God? And our to-do for that week was to be still and listen, or to be still and know. It's not that there's an audible voice of God that you're going to hear, but to be still and know. To know that God is with you to know that God loves us. And this is difficult in our culture. I mean, in our fast-paced lives, in our technology-driven lives, being still is tough. I'm not a person that really handles being still very well. On my days off, I have to-do lists, man. I, I fill them. And I feel great afterwards. But I'm not really great at being still. And that was the challenge for all of us, to be still and know that God is with us. 
in the midst of everything. Last week, week three, the question was, what interferes with root growth? And, and Doug explained that there was really three, three forms of disease that can, that can damage our roots or prevent us from growing. And they were unclaimed sin, which is there's stuff in our lives that, that we know isn't where God wants it to be, but, but we haven't asked for forgiveness. We're not dealing with it. We're not getting rid of it. Grudges and lists that, you know, we're keeping score with people, and, and it makes us become bitter, and it, and it prevents us from loving others. And then the last one was stuff happens, and, and that falls in that category of my sister-in-law, that, that, man, how, God, did you let this happen? You know, it doesn't seem right. And, and when we have those moments, it really shakes our foundation. This week, we're wrestling with this question. How do we nourish root growth? What steps can we take to increase our growth to make us healthier in our relationship with God, that, that when those tough times come, we won't lose our footing. So I have a question for you. I want, to just, want you to a- answer this. Who knows what one of these are? <coughs> root spike. I don't know who said it, but they were absolutely right. It's a root spike. All right. So we use these right here on our church campus. All the pine trees off to our left side out here every spring get about six of these guys. They get driven in right along the drip line. If you don't know what the drip line is, it's basically where the edge of the tree is and its size, where the leaves drip. We drive these in and leave leave them about a half inch under the ground. And then as it rains, basically this is a gigantic nitrogen stick. And it dissolves and it feeds the roots and it, it makes the pine trees grow or any trees grow for that matter. Now, I learned this because of my dad. My dad was a landscaper when I was growing up, and, and he landscaped all, a lot of homes right along the north shore of Lake Michigan. And, and he had this nursery there. And, and he loved plants his entire life. After he retired, he built a gigantic greenhouse on the back of our garage, much to my mom's dismay. And, and it was filled with plants all year long. And his favorite plants were gladiolas and dahlias. And and they were beautiful. My sister had her reception to our wedding in our own backyard because she said, man, the prettiest place I can think of is our yard. And it it was true. The, The flowers and the trees were amazing. But if you know anything about gladiolas or dahlias, they're they're kind of a tough plant to raise. And in Minnesota, it's really tough to raise them. Because every fall, you got to dig them out of the ground. If you leave them out of, over, over the year in our nice, wonderful winters, they'll die. So he would have to dig them up every fall, find a nice, cool place that was dry, and let them sit for six months before he replanted them. Then when he replanted them, he took all kinds of, of nutrients to make sure that they would grow. I can remember back that I would walk in my dad's greenhouse area, and, and he had these gigantic 55-gallon barrels it filled with liquid. And some were green, and some were yellow. And, and he'd always say, don't touch those. Don't put your hand in that. And I had no idea what they were. I, I kind of have an idea now that some of them were acidic-based um, for some of the plants we had. But they were all had a purpose, and they were all intended to encourage root growth. 
That's what we're talking about today, is root growth. How do we encourage it? And, and I'm going to tell you right up front that what I'm going to say, you're going to go, I already knew that. I got it. Big deal. My hope is I'm going to encourage you to understand why it creates root growth. And we're going to be starting out with just, just God's Word, with, with the Bible, that if we want to grow deeper and richer in our relationship with God, it's, it's going to take some, some nutrients. And one of those nutrients is the Bible. So, so one of the questions that someone asked me this week was, is the Bible a love letter from God? So I want you to think about that. Somebody asks you, you know, I've heard that the Bible is a love letter from God. What do you think? My answer is no and yes. Because when I usually first think of love letters, I think about the kind of really sickeningly sweet notes or poems that kind of get written around Valentine's Day for people. You know, something that looks more like this. Your touch melts my heart. Leaves me all asking for more. If this is love, then it is true. I will keep asking for more. Baby, can't live a day without you. Do you know the reason why? Because I love you to the core and I keep asking for more. You are an angel in my life. Love you, girl. I got news for you. My wife's never seen anything like that at all. <laughs> and never will. Um, trust me, it's never happening. All right? So when, I, when somebody says, is, is it a love letter from God? I go, no, not, not like that. No way. The yes is I think it is a love letter from a parent to a child. And, and this is what I think it looks more like. Dear son and daughter, I love you. I've always loved you and always will. My greatest desire is, that, is to have a rich relationship with you to share my wisdom and instructions with you. I want you to become the person I created you to be, using your gifts, talents, and passions as you follow me. Love, Abba, Dad. In that sense, it is a love letter to us. It was intended to encourage us, to inspire us, to help us in our lives because God loves us. So, so my answer is no and yes. God's word is meaningful to us. It's powerful to us. So for a moment, we're just going to have some fun. At least I'm going to have some fun. You may not. But we're going to take a little uh, trivia challenge to see how much you know your Bible. We're going to start easy, and we're going to move on from there. Don't yell out your answers. Keep score by yourself. That way you won't be too prideful, and you won't be too embarrassed, Okay. So here's the first one. How many books are in the Bible? 48, 77, 53, 66, and yes, the answer is up there. So if you have a different one, you're already wrong. So pick one of those. All right? You got it? You, who is confident? I just want to know. Confident. All right, there's two of you. Great. All right. The rest of us will catch up as we go. The answer is 66. All right. Yes. I'm so proud of you. All right, here we go. Second question. What is the shortest verse in the Bible? He slept, he wept, he drank, he leaped. All right. You got it? 
he wept. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept at the de- death of Lazarus. All right, those of you that are two for two, relax, because you're not going to be, okay? All right? Here we go. How many verses are in the Old Testament? 23,214, 52,431, 39,488, too many. For those of you that are saying too many, it's because you read a lot of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I'm just, I know, I know that's where you were. All right. You got it? Who thinks they got this? None of you. Awesome. You got a 25% chance. Come on. 23,214. All right, now all of you smug people that had two right, yeah, whatever. What verse contains all the alphabet except Q? <laughs> Revelation 22.16, Job 4.7, Daniel 4.37, Hebrews 5.9. Daniel 4.37. So now I got this off of a website that had hundreds of of trivia questions. What verse is the middle verse of the Bible? How many words are in the complete Bible? I mean, it was insane. And as I was looking at all this, whoever compiled it, compiled it my thought was, they missed the point. They totally missed the point. They gathered a whole bunch of data. They gathered a whole bunch of knowledge, a whole bunch of information. But that's not the purpose of the Bible. It was never intended to be a data dump for our lives. And I want to challenge us with that there's a huge difference between knowledge and knowing. God doesn't want us to have knowledge about him. He doesn't want us to read through the Bible, read through the stories and go, yep, got it, memorized it, know it, as data. He wants us to know it in our heart. He wants us to experience it in our lives. He wants it to be impactful. Big deal about the Daniel verse, every letter but Q. How is that going to change my life this week? But there is stuff in there that will change my life. And that's what God wants for us. That we would understand its value and purpose in our lives. That that's the purpose of God's word. It's not just something we should read because it's a duty, an obligation. It's something we we read because it is a love letter from our Father to us. That he wants us to change our lives. For us to live rich lives, healthy lives. Every couple of years, I take a bunch of our high school guys to the Boundary Waters. In about five days, we do a 30-mile loop, and and they help pick out the course that we're going to do. Three years ago, we had the worst experience of our lives. On day one, it started raining, and on day five, it stopped raining as we got out of the canoes. It was miserable. If that would have been my first experience in the Boundary Waters, I would have never done it again. I'd be like, nope, not fun. It was awful. Everything was wet. Our tents, our sleeping bags. We couldn't make a fire. We ate gross food. You know, I mean, yeah, it was supposed to be put water into it. It came with water in it, man. We were just, it was everywhere. It was a rough time. 
When we have those trips, we put together a packing list of all the important things that you need to bring with you for that trip to succeed. The two for me that are most important may not be what you think of. Most of us would go, well, you need a saw, you need an axe, you need matches. For me, you need a map and a compass. Because when we're doing the 30 miles through, through dozens and dozens of lakes, they all look alike, I gotta be honest. They all look the same way. And when you're trying to find which trail you're going to take to the next portage, you've got to have a map. And like this is one of the maps from Boundary Waters. You'll see that all the little red dots, those are campsites. Super important to be able to find those. All right? And there's a little dotted line on there that you can see between some of the lakes. Those are either the hiking trails or the portage trails to get from one lake to the next. And if you can't read the map and you can't find out where you're going... You can do loops in the same lake. Trust me, I know. Because we let the students lead after day one. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm a fool. I am. <laughs> but there's a limit to how, how willing I am to be lost. All right? I just got to say, on the third trip around the lake, I usually go, hey, is anybody reading their map? Uh-huh, got it. Anybody reading their compass? Uh, it's in my backpack somewhere. Yeah. Without the compass... The map's pretty worthless, I gotta be honest. You know, because you're like, oh, that's upside down, that's not north. <laughs> Flip that thing around. And, and after a while, they start to read the map, they read the compass. And they start to learn how to follow the path that we've made for the trip. That's how I see God's word. That it's the map for our lives. The psalmist wrote it this way. In 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. It's not just data. It's not just something we're obligated to read. But, but God's word gives us direction and keeps us on a safe path to walk in our lives. It gives us the directions that we need to stay healthy, to stay safe, and not get lost. Paul wrote it in a little bit different format in 2 Timothy, but he was trying to express some of the same thoughts that the psalmist wrote. So in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, he wrote, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. I want us to focus on the key words, and most of them are verbs. But all Scripture is inspired. It's God's writings to us. It's not a bunch of dudes that wrote it. It's from God. It's from our parent. And it's useful to teach us so that we realize when we've gone off course. It corrects us. And tells us what we're doing wrong. It teaches us what to do right. It prepares and equips us for life. To do what God wants us to be doing. The Bible grounds us and instructs us so that we would be firmly planted. That we would have deep roots as we go through life. For a moment, I want you to think about a couple differences between knowledge and what God desires for us. 
See, I think there's a huge difference between knowledge and actions. And God doesn't want us to settle for knowledge. He wants us to focus on actions. When I was thinking about going to seminary, my church had a, had a little Swedish 80-year-old pastor that was kind of the interim pastor for us. We were between permanent pastors, and, and, and he, was the, he was awesome. I just got to tell you, Lloyd Dahlquist, he was amazing. He had this gentle spirit, and he was friendly, and, and he loved everybody. One day when we were talking, he says, Doug, I, I have a story I want to tell you. And, and you may have heard this story, so just, just bear with me. But he says, I want to tell you a story because I think it will impact your ministry. So he told me a story about this church in West Virginia. And after the service on one Sunday, the pastor of the church said, this will be my last message here, and I'm finished. And he walked out of the church, and he was done. And the church didn't know what to do after that. So, so they had a church meeting, and the leaders of the church said, what are we going to do? There's no way we're going to have somebody here to, to, to teach next Sunday, to fill our pulpit for us. What, what should we do in the meantime till we get a new pastor for our church? And, and after they discussed it a while, one of the men stood up and said, well, I'm going to teach next week. So they didn't have any other more inspiring suggestions than his. So they said, sure, we're going to let you teach next week. So when Sunday came, he came to the front of the church and he started preaching. And he preached, we are to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And we should love our neighbors just like we love ourselves. And he gave illustrations and he was persuasive. And, and at the end of the service, everyone went, that was awesome. I can't wait for next Sunday. And they told him that. When next Sunday came, he got back into the pulpit and he started teaching. And he says, you know what? Today God spoken to me and he says, he wants you to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbors just like you love yourself. And he continued to tell new stories this time about it. And, and it was really great. And people said, you know, that was good. Week three came. Got in the pulpit. And he started teaching. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbors as yourself. At the end of the service, the, the leadership of the church came to him and said, um, can we talk for just a minute? Yeah. So I, your, your lesson's amazing. We're, we're just kind of curious, like, when you might move on to something else. He says, that's a great question. I had the same question in my heart, my head. I was wondering when you're going to start doing what I've been saying. Because then I'll move on. <laughs> you know what? There's a whole lot of truth in there. And in that Swedish pastor was trying to remind me that my job wasn't just to give data, but to lead people into action. There's a huge difference between knowing and our actions. James, the brother of Jesus, became a follower of Jesus after he died. He penned these words because this was one of the discussions that the early church was having. It was about having faith and having actions. And he wrote this in chapter 2. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith and others have good deeds. But I say... How can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? 
I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? James was telling the early church that knowledge without actions, knowledge without response, isn't enough. That our faith is reflected in the way we live. And if it's not reflected in the way we live, then we have to start asking questions about our faith. Let me give you another one. I think there's a huge difference between knowing and obeying. I mean, my kids know some things they're supposed to do and not do. It doesn't mean they obey. All right? Guess what? I'm just like them. There's things I know I should do and not do, but that doesn't mean I obey it when it comes to my relationship with God. But obedience is critical to our, to our faith. It's, in, it's incredibly important to our growing in our relationship with God. Um, Dr. Smalley wrote a book, Five Love Languages That People Experience, that they, they experience love. And, and, and I'll tell you this. If you want someone to know you love them, you will use your love language usually towards them. All right? And, and if you don't know what they are, it's um, touch, gifts, words of affirmation, time, and service. So just think about that for a moment. If, if you think, hey, I know what, and I want somebody to know I love them, I write them a note, you're a words of affirmation kind of person. If you go, hey, you know what, I want to do something for them, you're a service person. If you go, hey, I want to buy something for them, you're a, you're a, a gifts kind of person. But but Dr. Smalley says, almost all of us fall in those five categories. And, and we may have more than one. As I was thinking about this, I think God's love language is obedience. I mean, if we want God to know that we love him, it's an act of obedience to him. That that's his love language. Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples, on, on the very last night he was with them, some of his final instructions. In John, he, he told them these things. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them. And I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. But remember where it started? Obedience is the love language of God. His words. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. That one verse is incredibly challenging. I will wrestle with this verse my entire life. That, that obedience is the way I live out my love back towards God. But how do I live out that obedience? I have to be spending some time with God's word. 
I have to be engaging with God's Word, and, and, and that's our Bibles. And You know, we live in an age where it's awesome. You don't even have to have a, a written Bible. I mean, you can do audio books, and you can listen to the Bible. There's a, there's a website called The Bible Project. For those of you that are love, you'd rather watch a video, I want you to check it out. It's um, BibleProject.com. There are some great videos that walk you through you know, the New Testament, the Old Testament, the Psalms, the Proverbs. It'll give you information to wrestle with and apply to your lives. You know, we have more commentaries online today than, than you could ever imagine. 30 years ago when I started, you know, in seminary, they'd give us, you know, they'd give us commentaries to go alongside with our Bibles and they go, hey, read these four other books to go alongside of it. You can go on the internet now and get hundreds of commentaries on the Bible. You know, we had to, it was silly. We had to learn Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Guess what? I don't even know any of those things today. And that's pretty good because the Hebrew was rough. But man, you can get some of the greatest scholars that have ever written and wrestled with God's word just at a press of a button. But I do want to encourage you that even with all those technologies, I do want you to have a real Bible. And I want you to ruin it in the best way possible. I want you to write in it. I want you to underline stuff. I want you to highlight stuff. I want you to put question marks in it um, and wrestle with it. Not just know the data in it. So the question this morning that we're really getting down to, I mean, basically, the summary for this week's message is, you should read your Bible. When you walk out the door, you can go, so what did they talk about today? Oh, I think I'm supposed to read my Bible. You're right. My hope was to explain to us why it's important to read our Bible. So here's, here's what I want you to think about. Where do I start? Last weekend on our middle school retreat, the speaker was talking about the importance of this very topic of reading our Bibles. And, and then we broke up into small groups, and I said, hey, do any of you guys have questions? One of our girls raised her hand and said, yeah, I got one. This was her question. Where do I start? That's a great question. Because if she starts in certain parts of the Bible, she will quit. You know, there's, there's no way you start in, in the beginning at the Old Testament and you make it to the New Testament as a middle school student. No way. You got no shot. So we wrestled with that and talked about that. And, and, and here's my suggestion. If you don't know where to start, start in the New Testament. Start in one of the Gospels. And I'd encourage you to either choose Mark or John. They're very different. Mark is the shortest Gospel. It's more the historical narrative of the life of Jesus. It'll give you his life in a nutshell. John interprets most of his teachings. John gives you the personal side of Jesus and tells us how much God loves us. So start with one of those two. And as you read, wreck your Bible. Write in it, underline it, highlight it, you know, whatever it takes for you. But, but do more than just read it. But before you even read it, I want you to back up one step. 
Oh, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible. We have a whole bunch out at the Welcome Center. If, um, if you've matured in age and, and your eyesight may need those readers, we've got large print for you out there, okay? Grab one of those. If you've got great vision, take one of the smaller print ones for us. And we have them out there for the kids too. So if you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to walk out the door today just go over to Welcome Center and say, hey, Doug said I can get a Bible here. And, and I, I'll tell you, the hosts and hostess will hook you up with the Bible today. But before you start reading, there's one thing I want you to do. I want to go back to this tree spike. This tree spike is absolutely useless unless it rains. I can drive it in the ground at the edge of the tree. But if it doesn't rain none of the nutrients are released and the roots don't get anything. So before you start reading, I want to encourage you to pray. I want you to pray that God would use the Bible to release his nutrients into our lives. That we would begin to understand beyond the data how does this apply to me? How does this affect me? What am I supposed to do with this in my life? So do you have a Bible? If you got one, great. What should I read? Start in the Gospels. If you're going, I've done those things, great. Move forward. For those that are going, I'm not even sure, Doug, I believe what you're even saying, great. I want to encourage you to start reading and, and writing down all the questions, all of all the reasons why you don't believe, why you just don't get it, and wrestle with it. For those who've read the Bible, continue. But then ask yourselves some other tougher questions. Am I taking advantage of the nourishment the Bible provides me? Am I applying it? Remember 2 Timothy. Is it, is it teaching me? Is it helping me to realize what's wrong in my life? Is it correcting my life? Areas that I know aren't where God wants them. Is it teaching me new things that I never knew before? Is it preparing and equipping me to live my life with God? I want to wrestle with those questions. And wrestle with this one. Are there areas of my life where I know the Bible, but don't obey it? And I would say every one of us would have to say yes. I'd be shocked if anyone could say no. Right now, I'm, I'm in a wrestling match with God on this very topic. My mom is 89, and, and Amy's parents are in their 70s, and, and we're that sandwich generation. We've got our kids, and, and, and we're trying to figure out what to do with our parents. For the last year, I was, I've been stressed out about moving my mom here. After my brother passed away, there's no one that lives within 300 miles of my mom. So for the last year, we've been searching for a townhouse to get her here. And, and I've been all stressed out about it. Two weeks ago, I found a townhouse. I bought it in 30 minutes. Because if I didn't, it would be gone the next day. Guess what? The stress changed. 
Now the stress was, I hope she likes it. I hope she likes it. I hope she doesn't hate it. I spent a lot of money on this. I hope it works. And now I'm stressed out on the other side of it. And I'm worried about the other side of it. Now I got to move her. Now I got to bring her here. Now she's got to find everything. How is she going to find everything? And yet, I know God's addressed this topic in my life. Do not be, it depends on which version you use, do not worry, do not be anxious about anything. But pray. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, the, the peace of God, which is beyond our wildest knowledge, our wildest experiences, our wildest understanding, will guard my heart and my mind. Guys, I've memorized that verse since I was 14. It's on a little card in my office. I know. I have the knowledge. It's still a wrestling match with God that I continually have to keep going back and acting. God, I'm going to trust you with this. God, I'm going to try to stop worrying. I'm, God, I'm asking for your peace in my life on this topic. I, I think that's a lot of us that we're all doing that wrestling match with God. Am I going to act? Am I going to obey? Am I going to grow in my walk with God? So as we close our service today, I want to give you a few moments of silence to go back to be still and know and be still and listen and say, God, the stuff I've read, show me today what I need to start doing, what I need to stop doing. Show me today what I need to obey. Show me today what I need to add to my life so that my roots would grow deeper. Let's pray. I'm going to give you a few moments of silence. God, for many of us, our deepest desire is to know you better, to know what you want us to do with our lives. This week, help us to take time to invest in your word, that we'd listen to it, that we'd watch it, that we'd read it, that we would apply it to our lives, that we would take action. God, help us to make the Bible something that's not just a book that we've read, but a letter that we're living in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Have a great weekend. I hope we see you next week as we wrap up this teaching series, Rooted.